This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, so glad you can join us here at 88.7 FM or on the World Wide Web at WAGP.net, where we broadcast 24-7. So if you have friends in other parts of the country, sadly, most Christian radio stations have gone to a largely music format, and the need for solid teaching, well, it's just dismissed and not seen as that critical. So let them know about WAGP.net. With that said, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions And so if there's a particular challenge over a passage or a biblical concept or some realm of theology or an issue in your life or ministry or church, and we can be of help to direct you towards the Scriptures, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the local 843 South Carolina Exchange is 843-525-1859, 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL, that stands for The Bible Line, TBL at WAGP.net. All right, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning, Walter. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Paul out of Bluffton, South Carolina. He writes, Dr. Brogy, I am continually amazed when what is discussed at my Christian fellowship meetings is addressed by you through the Holy Spirit the very next Sunday. Last week at that fellowship, the topic of women pastors was raised, and I was surprised at how many of my fellow brothers in Christ thought it was acceptable, and some even had glowing reviews to share about these women. So thank you for your in-depth teaching on June 25th, 2023. I shared your link with two of those men, and hopefully they will see the light. My question is in regard to a statement you make when praying on most Sundays, and I quote, use me and anoint me. Can you unpack that and explain what it means to be anointed, and is that a blessing that is available to all of God's children? Well, it's a great question, Paul, and I suppose it's not totally surprising the reaction you've got in this men's Bible study over women pastors, um, because the church is largely untaught or it's grossly compromised. Many pastors today don't want to even address the subject They just kind of push it to the side. It's too controversial because the culture is more and more shaping the church. And so if you're listening to me today, I did do a three-week series on the role of women in the church, the role of women in ministry. God has a critical, important ministry for women, but it's different from that of men. Your question, though, is a little different. So let me just give some backdrop. And by the way, we offer a course at Community Bible Church called the Discovery Class. You will find portions of the course online at Search the Scriptures. If you go to the searchthescriptures.org, there's a phone app to you. You can download and you type in the search bar, uh, basic uh, discipleship, 
then you will see at least 23 of the 45 weeks. And I'm getting ready, God willing, in September to add another three or four weeks to that. With that said, one of the handouts, the last one we actually put up online, which was handout number seven, dealt with the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So let me just define some broad terms, and then we'll hone in on your specific questions. The Bible speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit prior to Pentecost was future. So I've flipped over here to Acts chapter 1, and Jesus made this statement. It says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. The promise of the Father, you'll find it in passages like Jeremiah 33 and so forth. It is um, the promise of a new covenant, of a new deal, where God would place his spirit not just on people, but in people where people would literally become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so in Jeremiah, I said 33, it's 31. Let me just flip over there real fast. In Jeremiah 31, God makes a promise of a new covenant when I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not again teach each other, know the Lord. Why? For they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. So this is different. You know, the Spirit's relationship in the old covenant was with a max of 500 people, which I cover in my course on pneumatology, if that's something you want to study further and in depth. Um, We offer a series of studies in the Institute of Biblical Studies, and one of them is on the Holy Spirit, pneumatos, is of course the Greek word for spirit, and so pneumatology concerns the doctrine of the spirit. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. In other words, you don't have to go through a Moses or a particular prophet Each will have access and uh, the same potential relationship because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. Ezekiel uh, 36, 26 echoes that same truth. So at this point, that's the promise of the Father. It was still future, for he then says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so the baptism of the Spirit took place on Pentecost. Uh, once the church began to progress, there's like one exception, some might say two, but the big exception would be like in Acts 8, where the Spirit is given after conversion with the Samaritans, and there were some unique reasons for that. But once the church is established, what you discover is that at the moment of conversion, the Spirit of God comes to dwell a person. That's Ephesians 1, 13 to 15, Ephesians 4, 30. So once you hear the message of truth and you believe it, you're sealed with the Spirit of God. You're sealed with him for the day of redemption. And that sealing produces a new identification. The word baptizo means to submerge, or its secondary meaning means to identify with. And so we are identified into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit's presence. He's also called the Spirit of Christ. And so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that we've all been baptized by one Spirit. So you don't need to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's a done deal. After Pentecost, you're never commanded to receive the baptism of the Spirit. As believers, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And so Paul will say, don't be foolish, understand what the will of God is, don't be drunk with wine, for that's a loss of control, it's dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit. 
And so he makes a comparison between drunkenness and the filling. And there's a critical clue here because it helps us to understand that when we're filled with the Spirit, we're under the control of the Spirit. Both a drunk person and a Spirit-filled person are controlled. Uh, The drunk person by the alcohol, the believer by the Holy Spirit. The drunk person will do things that are unnatural to him, whereas someone who's filled with the Spirit will be able to do things that are supernatural for him. In either case, if one is filled with alcohol or one's filled with the Spirit, the person chooses. He's making a choice as to who is going to lead, control his life. So what you find in uh, Acts 2 is the Spirit is given, they're baptized, and they're all filled with the Spirit. Uh, I've turned here to Acts chapter 4, where because in Acts chapter 4, the word filled is used once again. And of course, if you remember, the church is being persecuted, they're being threatened for preaching the gospel. They get together for this big prayer meeting, and in Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled. Now, it's interesting. It's a different word for filled than the one that is used in Ephesians 5.18. It's not plerao. It's uh, the word pimplemi, uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I think this passage is helpful, one, because the tense of Ephesians 5.18 is an ongoing tense. Be ye being filled, literally. In other words, keep on being filled with the Spirit. And so while you cannot lose the Spirit's indwelling that's permanent, you're sealed with him for the day of redemption. Jesus said, when I send the Spirit, he'll be in you forever. So he never leaves us. But while he may be indwelling us, he's not necessarily filling us. He can be resonant, but not necessarily present. And so there are things that can prevent us as saved, born-again people from being filled with the Spirit things like unconfessed sin, things like an unwillingness to do in the positive realm, things that God has called us to do. And so here are believers who were not in sin. They just needed a special touch of the Spirit to have boldness. I mean, think about it. Your life's being threatened. They want to stand for Christ. And so they stop, they remember who God is. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. So there's literally a physical shaking somehow of the walls. And there are times when these are what we call theophanies, uh, where God manifests himself somehow in the physical realm. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And so in this particular occasion, they needed to be filled with the Spirit not because there was some sin that they needed to repent of, but because they needed some new dimension of God's power in their life. So sometimes we call this special filling for a particular task, the anointing of the Spirit. And again, it gets somewhat semantical here because technically every believer is anointed with the Spirit. Read 1 John 2. Again, I cover this in that handout on the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, the Spirit-filled Christian. And again, that's handout number seven in the basic discipleship course that we cover on Sunday mornings in our, uh, dis- in our discovery class. And so in 1 John 2, he speaks of we've all had an anointing. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks of the fact that everyone has had an anointing, that is, if they're born again. God has um, set us apart and he's put the Spirit in us. But 
Again, you can call it the unction of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit. It can get semantical here. But I think we can properly say that sometimes when we have a special task, we're right in the center of God's Word and right in the center of God's will, and your heart just cries out, Lord, help me, use me, uh, give me wisdom, give me power. And we might call that the anointing, maybe the, uh, the unctionizing of the Spirit of God. And so that's really what's, what we're speaking about. And that's what I pray for. I mean, I'm walking into the pulpit on Sunday morning filled with the Spirit as much as I know how to, but I need God's empowerment, God's special touch for that hour or so when I'm preaching in each service. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes in as anonymous from Savannah, Georgia. They write, many bad things are happening to this listener, financial, health, and etc. Is it wrong for her to ask God why? And is it wrong for her to continually petition God in prayer? No, not at all. You should be asking why. In fact, that's the point that James makes when he speaks of trials that come in our life. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when. Uh, You will encounter trials if you know the Lord. Every person who just is human encounters trials in life. You know, there are people, Christians and non-Christians alike, who have been, you know, suffering under the floods in Pennsylvania and Vermont. Uh, you know, it's just part of being a human. And then there are some specific trials sometimes that come on the believer just because he knows the Lord. And even what we might call tribulations, all tribulations are trials, not all trials are tribulations. And I know sometimes we speak of trials and tribulations like They're synonymous, but they're not. The word thalipsis for tribulation speaks specifically of the pressure that um, an unbelieving world might put on us because we're walking with the Lord. In the world, you will have tribulation, thalipsis. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to be persecuted through many tribulations. Uh, We will enter the kingdom of God. There's the word thalipsis again. In other words, you're going to have opposition Uh, Jesus said, if they didn't like me, they're not going to like you, that the servant is not greater than his master. But when we face whatever it may be, a tribulation or a trial, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect. The word is teleos. It means mature or complete, lacking in nothing. But here's what you are asking, but. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. And so this anonymous caller, wherever you're from Savannah, Georgia, I guess, You might want to go to search the scriptures, download the app if you don't have it, type in the book of James, and listen to this message uh, in the opening series of the book of James. I think it would be very, very helpful to you. But one of the things God admonishes us to do is that when we're going through a trial, to seek him for wisdom. Now, we use this verse all the time. Oh, I've got a big decision to make. And God says, if we lack wisdom, we can ask of him. And that's a legitimate application. But understand its interpretation 
in its historical biblical context is in reference to a trial. So when you're going through a trial, you might want to ask, Lord, what is it that you're trying to teach me? What is it you're trying to show me? Maybe God will say, well, um, I'm demonstrating that you're one of my children, that you're under my divine discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. We're not all God's children. We're all created in the image of God and in his likeness and in the broad creative sense, we're his children. But in a spiritual sense, only those who've received Jesus are his children. And so some, some trials we've brought on ourselves. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. 1 Corinthians 11.30, and so sometimes God gives us divine spankings from heaven, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And so discipline can come in many forms. Sometimes it's corrective. Sometimes it's not corrective at all. It's not that we're doing anything wrong. Sometimes God just wants to make us more dependent on him. We're like a man depends on air to survive we learn to depend upon God in a spirit-filled way, going back to the prior question, to live the Christian life. And trials have a way of kind of snuggling you up close to the Lord and causing you to fall on your knees and to seek his face and ask him for his help. And in that sense, we, are need, we need to be in a spirit of prayer moment by moment. There are sometimes, okay, you mentioned financial problems. You know, sometimes people are having financial problems because they're violating God's financial principles. I have a whole course on the Bible and our finances. Again, you can find that at searchthescriptures.org. It's like a 130-page study uh, where I walk you through in the note-taking outline. We deal with various aspects of what God says about money. Some people are not tithing. Some are poor stewards. Some are not, you know, um, saving. And there are a number of reasons. Some people think, well, as long as I tithe, that's the silver bullet. And God's going to bless all my finances. That's one aspect, only one aspect of six that we cover in that course. It's an important aspect. It's a critical aspect. But if we're not, say, saving, learn a lesson from the ant, uh, that in time of plenty she's saved so that in time of need she has something. And the biblical principle is, hey, I got a big month. I guess I'll go out and spend it and well, maybe you should save some of it apart from what you give to the Lord. And so that when the month is not so big and some unexpected expenses come, we're ready to address those. So your question is very, very broad, but you should seek the Lord. You should get on your knees before him. God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud and say, Father, I don't really know what's going on. And I'm assuming you're a born again believer. And let me just say parenthetically, if you're not 100% sure that if this were your last day on earth that you would go to heaven, you need to settle that first. And again, you can go to searchthescriptures.org or communitybiblechurch.us or wagp.net. And on the home pages of those three websites, you will see a little thing, would you like to know God is your friend? And we explain how to be 100%. So sometimes God uses trouble to bring a non-Christian to faith. That's a bigger issue. But assuming you're born again, then you want to do what James 1.5 does. You want to seek the Lord in prayer and ask him, God, what are you trying to accomplish? Show me my heart is open. I'm not asking out of a divided heart. I'm willing for you to show me. So if there's some sin I'm under divine discipline for, show me. If there's some biblical principle that I'm breaking, show me. 
and God will indeed show you. Maybe he's showing you even through this short answer I've given. But go to searchthescriptures.org, among other things, assuming you know Christ, and listen to that message, because I have an hour and five minute long message on this very subject. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, our next question comes from Laura out of Westfield, Massachusetts. Uh, she writes, just wondering if you have ever done a sermon on Ash Wednesday. If so, I'd like to have it. A college student in a group that I am helping ask that question, and I have written down everything I know using scriptures, but would like to have a sermon of yours just to listen to. Thank you. Well, I don't have a sermon specifically as it relates to Ash Wednesday, but usually every year around Easter time, uh, this comes up because Ash Wednesday always takes place 40 days before Easter. See when it is, if you would, uh, Walter, in 2024. Just type in Ash Wednesday. If I remember, Easter comes at the end of March in 2024, so it's going to be sometime in February. Well, what's the date? Uh, 14th, Pastor Carl. Okay. February so, 14th. So on Valentine's Day, you may see some people who have ashes on their heads. Now, where does this come from? Not from the Bible, found nowhere in Scripture. And the passage that comes to my mind uh, is here from the Sermon on the Mount that I flipped to. Jesus said, when you fast, don't put on a somber look or some sad face, which is what the hypocrites do. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they may be noticed by men. When they are fasting, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret what is done, he'll reward you. Three things that God rewards us for when done in secret. They can all have a public expression, a prayer, giving, and fasting. But even when the church, say, makes a sacrificial commitment to fast, corporately. And there are times when the church fasts corporately. Occasionally, once or twice a year, I'll ask the church body, I want you to fast for this. Some pick a meal a day this week where you can fast for this issue as a church body. But you still don't parade yourself around gloomy and, oh, I'm fasting with the people of Community Bible Church today. No, you do it in a hidden way. But this whole idea of Lent Uh, Ash Wednesday, or more technically, I think it was originally called the Day of Ashes. I'm Roman Catholic, so uh, in in my background, and so every year on Ash Wednesday, we would go to church, and the priest would take those ashes, and the ashes are actually made from the palms from a year before. So on Palm Sunday, the leftover palms are then burned, and they take those ashes and store them. And then they make this sign of the cross on your head. So here, I, I just what comes to mind is the absolute hypocrisy in that you have the president of the United States, Joseph Biden, a Roman Catholic, affirming abortion in a public format with a cross with the ash on his head. And I thought, this is just the epitome of absolute lostness and hypocrisy. Uh, So Ash Wednesday, it's 40 days long, excluding Sundays before Easter, and it always falls on a Wednesday, and so there's no such thing as an Ash Thursday or an Ash Monday. Who's it invented by? It's invented by the Roman Catholic Church, Gregory I, who is probably our first pope. Now, if you ask a Roman Catholic who is the first pope, they'd say Peter. 
And when you go to um, a place called Tabga, uh, which I will take people to, Lord willing, in September there in Israel, uh, it was a place where Jesus on a beach uh, reaffirmed Peter. He wasn't making him the first pope. He was just reaffirming uh, this man who was a leader amongst leaders. He was part of the inner three. He was not the first pope. If he was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it. He called himself a fellow elder in 1 Peter 5. But he was reaffirming him because he had denied Christ three times, and he wanted to reaffirm him publicly. He had already had a private meeting. He appeared to Peter, then to the 12, and after that to over 500, Paul will write. And so the really first pope comes about 590 A.D., and his name was Gregory I. Uh, initially, again, the apostles die out. You have elders in various cities. And so some said, well, maybe we should have an elder of elders, and they made him a bishop. And, of course, the office of bishop is used interchangeably to describe the office of elder. They're not two offices. And so as time progressed, they said, well, maybe we need a bishop of bishops. And they called him the Pope. So really the first Pope is Gregory around 590. And he is the one who institutes this whole idea of ashes. Uh, Later in the 11th century, there is a Pope called Pope Urban II, and he comes about 1090. And he proclaims, again, he's the, the, the Pope of Popes, by the way, or the Bishop of Bishops, becomes the Bishop of Rome, which was a very strong church at that point in church history around 590, and so they call him the Pope. And so the Bishop of Rome, which is another term to describe the Pope, um, in 1091, Urban II, he basically says that this is something that needs to be done. So look, I don't want to do anything that's associated with Roman Catholic theology. Why? Because Roman Catholics, you know, people ask, are Roman Catholics Christians? Well, not if they believe Roman Catholic theology. Because the Roman Catholic Church demonstrably, absolutely denies, excuse me, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They deny that basic historical doctrine. You can't deny that and be counted as a true Christian. You say, is there teachings within the church that are true? Of course, that's what you'd expect. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light, but they have enough error mixed with the truth to damn them. And so I don't want to do anything that's associated with the Roman Catholic teaching. And it's a works righteousness. And so, of course, when I was a child, the popular thing to do is you gave up something for Lent. And then it got a little more spiritual. Well, you do something positively for Lent. Again, it's the same works righteousness where you're earning God's favor instead of working from God's favor. And that's a denial of the gospel, which must be believed. So there are Roman Catholics who are born again. But typically when they're born again and they start reading Scripture and their mind is regenerated, then they want to obey the admonition to separate from those who teach false doctrine. And to deny the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which the Council of Trent does, the Council of Trent was kind of a counter-reformation. It was in response to Luther's 95 Theses, and it met over a number of decades, and they put together a, a document called the Council of Trent, reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, and then in 2010 at the uh, special meeting of of cardinals in the Middle East, and it denies this fundamental teaching of the gospel. 
So should a Christian practice Ash, you know, Lent? No. Should they practice Ash Wednesday? No. It's contrary to the fundamental teaching. And so you're putting kind of a stamp of approval on something that originated in Catholicism. Now, I will say there are now some Protestant churches that practice Ash Wednesday, and all of them that do are liberal. Uh, many of these Protestant churches that are doing this ritual are also f- waving the LGBTQIA flag and everything else. So, you know, I don't want anything to do with the Roman church. Do I love Roman Catholics? Yes. I want to see them saved. Do I love what they teach? Any true biblicist will not love what they teach, whether it's the perpetual virginity of Mary and praying to her and her her immaculate conception or ascension into heaven or Ash Wednesday or anything else you can think of. This is a fair question from Westfield Mass. A lot of Roman Catholics there. And uh, I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Let's go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have our first live caller. Good morning, caller. You're live with Pastor Carl. Good morning. Um, My name is Latin, and I have a question for you. Yes. Okay, my question is, um, if humans never lived aside dinosaurs, then how did God create all the animals when Adam and Eve were in the garden? And I didn't catch your name. I couldn't hear it. Say it my, again. My name is Latin, L-A-T-I-N. L-A-T-I-N. Like oh, yeah, like the language. Latin. Where are you from, Latin? Um, I was born in Charleston, but I live in Hilton Head. In Hilton Head. All right. How old are you? I'm 11. 11. This is a fantastic question. So your, your question is based on a false premise. Your question is based on the premise that um, men didn't walk with dinosaurs when they did. And so what you might want to do is if your parents allow you to do this, and I'm assuming they probably would since they're letting you call the Bible line, is listen to the first four messages I teach on the book of Genesis because I deal with this subject of dinosaurs in great detail. So God created dinosaurs in the same day he created man. And so when you go to the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Genesis account, God explains what he did on each and every day of creation. And so the word dinosaur actually is not found in the Bible, and you wouldn't expect it to be found in the Bible. It was actually not coined until the 1800s, and it's from a Greek word that meant a great lizard. So there's a lot of words that aren't in the Bible but describe biblical truth, like the word trinity. It's not found in the Bible. Um, It comes, uh, you know, almost 200 years after the creation of the church, once the church is formed. But it is a great term that Tertullian used to describe that God is three in one, that we don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God said, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps in the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them 
rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every creeping thing, uh, every living thing. And then it goes on at the end of verse 31, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God created the land animals uh, on the same day that he created Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve walked together. Now understand this is pre-fall. And so before the fall, there was harmony with the created order. Uh, There were no hurricanes, there were no tornadoes, and there was harmony in the animal realm. In fact, one of the things that God asked Adam to do, and you can read about it in the second chapter, is he's showing Adam a need. And so he has them name the animals. And here comes, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, and Mr. and Mrs. Tiger, and Mr. and Mrs. Horse, and Mr. and Mrs. Dinosaur, and so on. And, and he sees that every animal has a corresponding creature, but he had no such thing. And God's showing him a need, and that it's not good for man to be alone. And, and so he puts him to sleep, and God answers with surgery. He cuts his side open, uses a rib from his side, and he makes his wife. And he presents Eve to him. So uh, when we think of dinosaurs, there, while the word dinosaur is not found in the Bible, they are certainly described in the Bible. And again, this is why I, I really think it would be a big help to you to listen to that these early messages in Genesis, because you're asking critical questions. And what's being done in our day is the book of Genesis is being undermined. Well, if you can't believe Genesis then what else can't you believe? And so you see, the evolutionists want you to believe that the world is millions and millions of years old. It's not. Um, it's, it's approximately 6,000 years old. But they want you to believe that because they don't want you to think that there's any accountability to God. In fact, early evolutionists started with the premise there is no God. So if there's no God who is all-powerful, who can create the heavens and the earth and the great land animals called, for instance, in the book of Job, behemoth, um, then how do you get this world? And their theory was evolution. You have another large creature called Leviathan. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Uh, no, you can't. He's too big. You, you, can't, you can't play with this animal he, he's really something big. And again, uh, this particular animal is called the uh, Brachiosaurus, I think is how the kids say it, the first graders. They, they know all the names of these dinosaurs, and he was created in the sixth day. And so when God creates these animals, he describes one that has a tail like a cedar tree that swings. He's describing a dinosaur. And of course, as recent as the 12th century, the Chinese have in their drawings dinosaurs. And in the um, uh, 14th century, the Irish said they saw dinosaurs. In 19, I think it was 78, I covered this in the sermon. And in fact, if you listen to it visually, you can download the audio, you can watch the visual. I show a picture of a water dinosaur 
um, so to speak, and it was absolutely huge. There was no fish in the sea that they could correlate it to. They had to pull it out of the sea with a crane. In fact, the Japanese who pulled it out of the sea off of the coast of New Zealand made a stamp, and it's called the dinosaur stamp. Um, so dinosaurs walked on the earth. What happened to them? They went extinct. At some point, they went extinct. Just like last year, um, many, many animals went extinct. They, they're gone. And, of course, after the uh, great flood, the dynamics of the earth greatly changed. And so prior to that, of course, man lived hundreds of years. After the great flood, there was probably a... Um, a protective layer around the earth, much like there's a ring around Saturn. Many believe some of the best scientists in the world, like Henry Morris, who wrote a classic work called The Genesis Flood, that there was a canopy around the world that would have shielded us from the protective rays, and so man would live much longer. But interestingly, God not only brought water from up above, but from down below. We're not talking about normal rain clouds. They say if every single cloud rained all at once to their max, the earth might be covered in six inches of water. The highest mountain was 18 cubits below the surface of the water. And people have seen all these floods recently, and they said, well, I, I thought God's never going to flood the world again, and they're mocking the Bible on some internet sites, and actually, that's not what the text says. It, it doesn't say there'll never be a flood again. It says he'll never flood the whole world again and destroy it. That's the promise of the rainbow, which sadly some aberrant lifestyles have ruined and grabbed to try to make it their own. So there were dinosaurs. In fact, if you... Um, go to a place called Leakey, Texas. And in Leakey, Texas, they have fossil evidence of perfectly formed human footprints next to dinosaur prints, side by side. There's visual archaeological evidence showing what the Bible affirms, that man walked side by side with dinosaurs. So that's the short answer. You might want to buy some literature. I've written some things for Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis and some of his apologetic series. But if you go to Answers in Genesis and type in dinosaurs, you should get some material from them. And I think that would be very helpful to you as well. But if you want to understand it biblically from the accounts and listen to the early sermons I did in the book of Genesis. Good question. Appreciate Latin asking a question like that. But remember, you started with a premise that was a false premise. They didn't live millions of years before men. The scripture teaches they were created on the same day. Anyway, let's go to the next caller. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from a listener here in Beaufort County who has recently joined a church, but she is concerned because the pastor there is remarried. Is this something that she should be concerned about? Well, yes, she should because he's not qualified to be an elder. And so let me turn it. Remember the word elder, pastor, bishop uh, is used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same office. It doesn't mean he can't serve God. doesn't mean his life can't be blessed of God. Uh, possibly hundreds of people listening to me, they're on a second marriage. Does that mean God can't use them? Of course not. But when it comes to leadership in the church, the two offices that continues 
that continue after the office of apostle, the office of elder, and the office of deacon. The man cannot be divorced. Now, people want to manipulate this today because in the last 50 years, the whole dynamics of divorce in this country has changed. When I was in grammar school, I remember my friend Mark Charest whispering to me and said, so-and-so, they've been divorced. And that's kind of the spirit in which it was said, and it was so rare. And as far as I know, that was the only girl in our class of 32 in the sixth grade who was in that situation. But now it's commonplace. How do we go in 1923 from one in 100 marriages ending in divorce to approximately 53 out of 100? Well, we've jettisoned God. Uh, Even if you were not a born-again believer— uh, and who read the Bible in the 1920s, you could not graduate from a high school in America in 1923 without having read the New Testament. There was a course taught in every high school in America during the 1920s. It was called the New Testament as Literature. In fact, it was still being taught in the junior high I was in. Actually, um, yeah, the junior high, which went 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, Back then, I know they've changed the dynamics. I think middle school starts in sixth grade, but uh, they had junior high and then they had senior high. And so this was the ninth grade course, the New Testament is literature, but it wasn't required when I was there, but it was still being taught, no longer, of course. And so even if you weren't born again, if you were Jewish, if you were Muslim, not many of those back then, still you knew some basic principles and you were Christianized. We've lost all that. And so now people don't want to be offensive and they don't want to speak the truth. So it's a trustworthy statement. And he goes on and he gives the qualifications. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household How will he take care of the church of God? So the husband of one wife. So this caller might want to go to search the scriptures, download the app if you don't have it, and listen to my message from 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I would have divided that, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through, I said 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and listen to that message, and I walk through these qualifications. The husband of one wife, the Greek text says, a one-woman man. Now, sadly, this has been understood differently um, in our culture today. Roman Catholics say, because they allegorize the text, and when you allegorize the Bible, you can make it mean a lot of things. There is an allegory in Scripture, like in the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter, but when Paul uses it, he doesn't deny the historicity between Sarah and Hagar. He affirms it, but then he uses an allegory to teach the Christian's relationship to the law and the age that we live in. And so uh, understand if you spiritualize the text, so how do Roman Catholics argue for the Pope being single, the Cardinals being single, the bishops being single, the priests being single, and a deacon who is a priest being single? They take this text and they say the husband of one wife and they say the priest, the cardinal, the pope is married to the church. And then, well, what do you do with the verse that follows? His children must be under control. They spiritualize that and they say the people that he's leading in the church 
must be under control. And again, you make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. It doesn't mean that. And certainly in uh, 1 Timothy 5, the reverse is used, not a one-woman man, but a one-woman, not a one-woman man, but a one-man woman. And so he speaks of those who might be qualified to be put on the list uh, as widows who are truly widows indeed. And no one debates what the reverse phrase means. Some say, well, this is a prohibition against polygamy. Certainly not. Remember, even in Rome, under Roman law at this point, polygamy was forbidden. And so it doesn't mean that a polygamist wouldn't even be considered a believer at this time in church history because the hardness of man's heart, there was no excuse now. A person like Solomon and David could be considered believers whom you will meet in heaven. But understand, if someone had multiple wives in our day, like some of our Mormon residents here in the United States do, they wouldn't be considered believers, not believers at all. This was not a prohibition against polygamy, meaning one woman at a time, or bigamy, two wives. Um, some would say, well, uh, he's talking about a one-woman kind of man in his heart, that he's not a flirtatious man. No, he covers that under the issue of self-control. Listen, even the Reformers understood the husband of one wife to, to see this as someone who had been married before was excluded if, by, by divorce. So he's not even saying that if a man was married and his wife died and he marries a second time— that he would be excluded from the office. In fact, uh, Timothy is instructed by Paul that younger widows should be encouraged to remarry, and not so they could be excluded later on from the honorable list, but because it was the right thing to do. And so it wasn't a requirement, but it was ideally the right thing and typically essential in the uh, time of human history in which they lived. And so this is an exclusion. Look, someone wrote me recently, and uh, they said, you know, there's a, a man in our church, and his, uh, his teenage girl has become a boy, transgender. He's on his second marriage. Is he qualified? They've made him an elder of the church. And I said, are you kidding me? I mean, are you even kidding me? Um, that this man would be considered qualified. And you just hear this almost, you know, weekly now. It's beyond belief. Listen, if a man does not know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if he can't make Christianity work in his home, don't export it into the church. Now, understand, people who are divorced don't have a big D written on their backs. Any pastor today who has a church that grows by conversion is going to have a church with over 50% of the people who are on second marriages. That's just the day that we live in. Uh, with that said, he still needs to speak the truth. And a divorced person can serve in any capacity. They can be missionaries. They can serve on staff uh, of a church, but they cannot. They cannot serve in the office of elder or deacon. And even people who are on second marriages need to make sure that they've dealt with their issues biblically. And so, again, God's not down on divorce, people. He's up on marriage. I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. He describes it in Malachi 2.16 as a violent act. Why? Because what God has joined, no man is to separate. It's like tearing apart two living people. 
People tell me it was easier to get over the death of a loved one than it was over my divorce. Why? Because it just does something when you tear apart two living people. This has nothing to do with whether the divorce happened before they were saved, after they were saved. And it's not an issue of forgiveness. It's an issue of qualifications. There are sometimes a person, and again, sometimes we just ask, is the person divorced? Look, there's 21 qualifications for an elder in the local church. For instance, he must have a good reputation with those on the outside. I think of a man in a church that I was an elder at in Texas, and this man had gone to prison for um, statutory rape of a 14-year-old girl in prison. He found Christ as his savior. After he served his time, he came to our church. Um, We actually baptized him because he had not had believer's baptism. But in that community in which he lived, because of what he did, he would never have a good reputation with those on the outside. And so would it be wise for him to serve as a deacon? Not really, because of the public nature of what he had done in the particular uh, community in which we were in. It was not an issue of forgiveness. Look, some people don't handle their finances well. They shouldn't be elders or deacons. Some pastors are 50 pounds overweight. They're suffering from mild obesity. They're not exercising self-control. They shouldn't be an elder. And so, yeah, you should have a big concern because there is a man who's either grossly ignorant of Scripture or disobedient or has rationalized Scripture when he would be doing this church a far greater service to say, Hey, look, I I can serve God, but I'm not qualified. And what does that do? That heralds the preciousness of marriage. Put it in the realm of capital punishment. In England, until 1961, if you were guilty of murder, you were going to be executed. If there was ample evidence to show on the basis of two or three witnesses, and this goes back to their Christian heritage, and you were guilty of murder, it was not a matter of uh, if, it was when. You were going to be executed. And so the police officers, the first time I went to England, it was in 1975, I went with my dad. He was here on a medical conference, and none of the police had guns. They carried sticks. They carried a club. They didn't need guns. Um, As time grew, the next time I went to England in the 1990s, Everyone had an Uzi strapped to their side. Why? Because in 1961, they lifted capital punishment. It didn't take long for the murder rate to grow 1,000%. And so capital punishment is a deterrent to murder. Now, sadly, we live in a day where a man is guilty of murder, and you know the guy who walked into that church up there in Charleston and murdered the pastor and eight other people, he's still on death row. Look, the guy's guilty. He should have been executed a long time ago. Who knows? It might take 20 years before he's executed. And Ecclesiastes 8 teaches when there's a great distance between the crime and the punishment, it takes away the punch. And if a man's on death row for 20 years, then capital punishment becomes effectually ineffective. But it's a deterrent capital punishment uh, because God is not down on life. He's up on life. And to protect in the two remaining offices, the office of elder or deacon, 
the, to herald the ideal, the sanctity of marriage. Look, if I've been married three times and I'm the pastor of the church and I get up and I'm speaking on, you know, the need to work through problems, I've lost credibility. I, I just don't speak with much authority by my example because God is not down on divorced people, but he's up on marriage and he wants to protect it. So, yeah, I wouldn't go to that church. You're wasting your time. I'd, I'd leave tomorrow. Good question. Let's go. All right. We have uh, one more, Pastor Carl. Our next one comes from Heather out of Pennsylvania. She has a son entering 11th grade and a daughter entering the 8th. Is it too late to begin homeschooling? Absolutely not. My guess is, is that she is listening to the current series that we're doing in God's prophetic schedule when I dealt with the days of Lot. Correct. Which would have played, what, in the last month or so? Two weeks ago, I think. Yeah. I dealt with this whole subject of what is happening in the government school system. Listen, I may be speaking to someone today who's 60 and 65, and you say, well, my experience in the government school system was good. Well, um, listen, don't do your decision-making by what your experience was. You need to ask, what is the government school system like today? And it's absolutely horrendous. And so it's a general principle. If you put your kids in the government school system from K through 12, and you expect a godly product, there are too many biblical principles that are being violated. And God, you know, will not honor that. And if your kids walk with God, it won't be because of you, it will be in spite of you. But you don't test God with the principles that he has given in Scripture. I would say, get your kids out of the government school system. You say, well, my school system's different. That's what you want to believe. Look, they found one of my members, 19 books in the Beaufort County schools, middle schools, high schools, that you wouldn't want your kids to read. And two of them were just blatantly pornographic. And so at least the school board removed those. We're examining the other ones. Look, you don't want this kind of exposure to your children. And what's coming down the pike is not good by federal mandate. And so if schools want to keep getting their money, they need to, you know, play up to the transgenderism thing and and forget whether their school is playing up to it. Here in Beaufort County, we got kids who are coming out, I'm lesbian, I'm homosexual, I'm transgender, I'm, you know, whatever it is, all these gender positions, some 53 that people have made up, some say 153, I don't know. All I know is there's two. And so when you put your kids in that atmosphere and you put your kids in an atmosphere with heterosexuals who are, they've got a computer in their hand, it's called a cell phone, and they're watching porn and all this other stuff, your kids are going to be broken down. Get the kids out. Go to searchthescriptures.org, type in home education seminar and watch it. And that will give you some practical things to understand what your legal alternatives are based on the state you are in, how to find it, and so on. So we're out of time, but thanks for being with us today as we've been studying God's Word.